If you had any superpower, what would it be? To heal, to heal other people. Wow. Because we cannot go through life and have all these great things happen to us unless we have experienced pain and discomfort and, and sadness. You must go through the gambit of life to appreciate what you have. That's the first step, surrender. You're surrendering to the fact that you need help. Like it is just, it is, it's different now. I'm winning my, you know, no, of course not. So like when you said, I've never heard of anyone regretting getting sober, it's like, yeah, because no one ever comes back and says, I was successful. I beat it. I'm able to control, you know, that's right. just not a thing with us. It's just not a thing. Hey, sober people and sober adjacent people. Welcome to I Have 12 Questions. I'm Amanda Patton, your host, a leading expert on nothing. However, I am in recovery and I love it so much so that I launched this podcast where we get to talk to people who are trudging the road to happy freaking destiny across all the different ways that people get there. So while this is definitely through the lens of recovery and sobriety, these stories and the themes that we'll be covering are universally human. So love, loss, grief, excitement, parenting, outside issues, purpose, God stuff, whatever. In the words of the great Ted Lasso by way of Walt Whitman, I want to be curious, not judgmental. So like I said, we'll be talking to people in recovery. We're going to be talking to experts and practitioners who help those people along their path in recovery. And we're just really excited to hear people tell their stories and to be inspired by them and to create a community of support for everybody in recovery and people who know and love people who struggle with addiction issues and whatnot. So anyways, we're so glad you're here and thanks for listening. Hey listeners, just a quick disclaimer before we get into the interview. These episodes may contain adult language and subject matter that's not appropriate for all audiences. Also, we are not doctors or psychiatrists, so what we share on these episodes is certainly not to be considered medical or psychological advice, just our own personal experiences, which we hope will be helpful to others on a similar quest. So that's it, and thanks for listening. All right. So, hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We have another great show in store for you today. Um, our guest is Tim, and he's a man in recovery as uh, as well as uh, ex-Marine and a junior Olympic boxer, MMA fighter. Um, he shares his lessons about uh, being an alco active alcoholic and addict and becoming a motivational speaker. Um, and he also does a lot of work and advocacy for mental health and suicide prevention, which we know is very important in our community. Um, he's involved in outreach nonprofits as well, the Overwatch Collective and Rockstar Testimony, uh, which we will hear more about today. And I'm going to put all of those links in the show notes so you guys can find out more about it. Um, and do you pronounce your name Lajan? I should have asked that earlier. Yeah, you got it right for the first time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Please say it right. Okay, uh, so you can find him on Instagram at T-Logen, that's T-L-O-D-G-E-N. So without further ado, let's get into it, Tim. Thank you for saying yes and being on the show. No, thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to reach one more person because I truly believe that one more person that we reach is one less that we lose to this disease. True. It's so true. First of all, thank you for your service. My grandfather was a Marine, so like I kind of have a little extra love and respect for that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. 
Okay, let's start with an icebreaker because these conversations can get kind of serious and dark sometimes. Not always, but so I like to start with a, with an icebreaker, which is if you had any superpower, what would it be? To heal. To heal other people. Wow. Not, not like healing myself, but to heal other people from trauma and pain and uh, addiction, diseases. Um, and anything, you know, because life is full of pain. It really, truly is. We all, life happens on life's terms. There's nothing we can do about it. The only thing we have control over is how, how we react to what's going on in our life. But, you know, addiction is, nobody wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm just going to throw my whole entire fucking life away and I don't give a crap. You know, it, it, it's right. a disease. Cancer is a disease, brain tumor, you know, anything that happens that we have no control over. Um, and it happens to some of the nicest people in the world. And um, if I could truly just have the healing power to heal people and let them have a chance to live out their life and fulfill what they were meant to be, because we all have a purpose here. We're all here for a reason. We may not know what that is, which mm -hmm. I truly believe for me, that's why I was lost for so long. I really didn't know why I was here and uh, drugs and alcohol numbed me from having that kind of thought of why am I here? What am I supposed to do? I don't know yet. I know it's not building houses all day. I know it's not, you know, getting up at four 30 in the morning and laying concrete. I'm, I have a bigger purpose. What is it? But I never could find it. I never knew what it was until I got sober. And then I've realized that the 27 years of addiction and mental illness and the suicide attempts was all for me to learn. It, well, I wasn't being punished. I was being educated. Wow. Uh, it was setting me up for what I truly was here for because we cannot go through life and have all these great things happen to us unless we have experienced pain and discomfort and, and, and sadness. You must go through the gambit of life to appreciate what you have. I love that. Oh, that's powerful. Can you kind of take us back through your experience? Um, and I know you're a real popular guy and you're on a lot of podcasts and you've told this story many times in many different ways. So I, I, I don't want to have to have you repeat everything, but it is important for people who haven't heard your story before to just kind of hear what that looked like for you. And I'll, I'll, I'll narrow it down, but um, I, I, didn't grow up, I didn't grow up in a house with drugs or alcohol. My father was a police officer. My mother actually in the 80s was a professional bodybuilder. Um, she was one of the first 10 like women to make it in muscle magazines and stuff like that, which was kind of oh, cool. Yeah. Um, but there was, no, there was no alcohol in the refrigerator, no, no liquor in the cabinets, nothing like that. My mother and father did get a divorce when I was young. I was six years old, so I grew up primarily with my mother. Um, she remarried when I was in high school. Um, so my, I had a stepfather around, but it wasn't like a, a real dad. It was more like a cool uncle that hung out, you know, take me fishing or skiing and, and taught me how to work on motorcycles. You know, just like a really cool older brother or uncle. There was no intimacy. Like, I love your body. I'm proud of you. Nothing like that. So I kind of I kind of grew up lost, not having a father figure. And not to mention, my father was more worried about himself and chasing women around. So uh, when he would say he's coming to pick me up, I would pack my bags and sit at the front door and he would never show up. This happened so many times that my mom would say, 
your dad's coming to pick you up, pack your bags. I'm like, why? I'm just going to sit at the, the bottom of the steps and he's just going to call in an hour and cancel. So that really, that was another reason why I, I didn't love myself as much as I could, because I told myself if a parent didn't love me, why should I love myself? My own father didn't want to hang out with me. My own father didn't want to take me to a you know, baseball game or take me to an amusement park or, you know, why should I even care about myself? Your parents are supposed to love you unconditionally. And here's a parent not even giving two craps about me. And I have a brother who's 10 years older than me. So for me, I, he left when I was six, but he stuck around for my brother until he was almost a senior in high school. Like, what did I do? So that carried a big weight on me. But my mom did put me in a lot of sports. She kept me busy. She kept me active, you know, out of the house. She really did a great job. She got two, three jobs. Uh, she really did everything that she could do to make sure that I had the healthiest and happiest life that I could as a child, which was great. You know, she, she, she's one of my heroes because when my dad left, she made $10,000 for the first year and she kept the roof over the head. She kept food in the house and she worked her way up, put herself through college, got her master's degree and ultimately became this vice president of this big company. And she became a millionaire. She really like to see that from that much of a struggle and, and becoming so successful in life really, really did impact me. But all through high school, you know, middle school, elementary school, no drugs, no alcohol. I wasn't interested. I was an athlete. Played baseball, played football. I was a sponsored skateboarder for five years. I, I don't know if you know who Brandon Novak is from Jackass, but I grew up with him. Yeah, so I, he was a couple streets down from me. We went to elementary and high school together and we skateboarded together on the same teams and so i grew up with him and i chose a you know ninth grade as a 15 year old boy i got into girls a lot and that was my priority so i stopped skateboarding and let that go out the window which is one of my actually one of my biggest regrets because but it is what it is right things happen for a reason so but no still no drugs and alcohol i just wasn't like we was talking a little bit beforehand, I was like, yeah, you even smoke cigarettes? Like, what the heck's wrong with you? Like, I can't believe you smoke cigarettes. You're supposed to be healthy and happy. Yes. It wasn't until I got until senior year of high school, and I realized my grades weren't good. And a lot of my friends were getting into drugs. I didn't want to go down that road like that, because that's what I told myself. So I joined the Marine Corps the summer before senior year. So I already knew once I graduated, I was going into the military. But that year, I told myself, well, I better have some fun this year because next year shit's going to hit the fan. I'm going in the military. It's going to be serious. My life's going to change. So my whole year, senior year, I started drinking, going to parties. And for me, when I got the alcohol in my system, that barrier came down for me. And I was like, well, what else is at this party? Yep. Let me try whatever else is here because you know, I, might, I might as well get it in. I literally thought it was a fate. I was like, let me just have a good time. So the smoking pot, you know, the taking mushrooms, taking LSD, dabbling with some pain pills. There was PCP around when I was here. So I tried some of that. We would go to parties and do ecstasy, um, ketamine, you know, just the, a lot of the party drugs that were around. Thank God I was never into heroin. Uh, cocaine, I only tried three times in my life. Again, I had a stigma about people who did cocaine. My first thing was, I'm going to try cocaine for the first time. My heart's going to explode. Yeah. That's that's what I thought. So I was like, nah, I didn't want to. And the very first time I tried cocaine, I ran off the road down into a ditch. My head went through the windshield and I wrecked my truck. <sighs> I, was at a, I was at a bar with a guy. 
we're drinking beer and he's like, Hey man, do a little bump. I'm like, I don't do that. He's like, I'll make you drink more. I said, okay, cool. Remember doing that. An hour goes by, he goes, you want another one? I'm like, yeah, man, you know, ended up doing a lot that night and came around the corner, it was raining, lost control, wrecked my truck. So I, I, I was like, I'm never doing that again. And that was at the age of like 20 or 21. And I didn't do it again until my forties. Wow. I just wasn't around it, but you know, it just, I went through, a, I went through a lot that senior year. And when I got into the Marine Corps, the drugs did stop. There was no more drugs while I was in the military, but the alcoholism skyrocketed by 10. Yeah. Uh, that's what we did when we got off. We got off at four, left the base, went to the bars and the strip clubs and the bases. I mean, the bars around the base, their motto was, if you're old enough to take a bullet for the country, you're old enough to have a cold beer. I, I'm sorry. I kind of agree. If, if I can sign, if I can sign on a dotted line saying I'll give you up and two, including my life, why can't I have a cold beer? But right. now looking back on it, you know, you're a baby all through your twenties. That's like, you're, you're like in middle school. You don't get to high school until you're in your thirties. You know what I mean? And then you don't, <laughs> you don't hit, you don't hit college till you're in your forties. And that's just the way I kind of look. Yeah. At it. So, but we parted a lot. We drank a lot. And there was no type of, you guys are underage, you shouldn't be drinking. Our, our, our sergeants would be at the bars, late 20s, early 30s, doing the same thing. They would just say, don't get locked up, don't get in trouble, don't get in a fight. Make sure your ass is up at 3.30 in the morning and ready to run. So it wasn't a deterrent as young men. It was right. kind of like, this is what we do. So um, I got home. The first month was a really cool de decompression period. I didn't have to get up at 3.30. I didn't have to cut my hair. I didn't have to wear the same uniform. But the second month hit, and, I, and I'm looking at myself. I'm, I'm moved back into my mom's house. I'm 21. I have no car. I have no job. I have no identity because now I'm not a Marine. What am I? Right. I really, the only job experience I had was working at the grocery store all through high school and working at VFW as a dishwasher in middle school. So I really had no job experience other than being in the military. So what was I going to do? And so the third month came and I got extremely depressed. Wasn't showering, wasn't shaving. I was drinking a lot. I started smoking pot again because now I have no drug tests. Taking some pain pills when my buddies could give them to me. I found myself one day with a gun on my lap, not knowing what to do. Thank God I had a girlfriend. She came over and took it from me. And that's when I, I told my mom I have a problem. Something's going on. I need to talk to somebody. Yeah. She got me into the doctor's. And they diagnosed me with bipolar one manic depressant disorder and they got me on medicines. And what I'd like to tell people is it doesn't matter what you're on medicine for. If a doctor prescribes you medicine, please be honest with your doctors. Please tell them if you're drinking alcohol or if you're smoking or doing drugs or whatever the adverse effects of the, of the drug that they give you is going to play in, in the role of the drug. Right. Tell them because I never told him I was drinking every day. I never told him I was smoking pot or taking pain pills or eating mushrooms. I, so the medicines that they gave me never worked. And when I went back for the checkups, how are they working? They're not. I don't know. There's something wrong with me. The shit doesn't work. I'm just not going to take it anymore. No, we'll, 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 we'll put, put you on different medicines. Maybe that just isn't working good with your body. You know, so they put you on different medicines. They upped the milligrams, changed the medicine again, add, add these three medicines over here. And that, that concoction of changing medicines up and down milligrams on and off, because as a bipolar person with bipolar, I would feel good for six months. 
and be like, well, what the hell do I need this medicine anymore? I, I'm doing great. Right. Throw the medicine away and then two or three months later have a severe crash and have to be back put on medicine. I didn't realize that I needed the medicine. Right. That's why I was crashing. Yeah. And I was feeling good because the medicine was actually working. I also had a problem admitting to myself that I was somebody who needed medicine to feel normal like somebody else. Why was I born with a chemical imbalance in my brain and you weren't, or you weren't, or you weren't? Why do I have to live with this? Right. What's wrong with me? Why was I born like this? And that was a big thing for me. So self-medication was so much easier than having to take, well, I, it sounds stupid now, but self-medication was easier than just waking up in the morning and taking a pill. Yeah. But that's, that's the addict and mental illness way of thought. I'd rather go to the store or, or call the drug dealer and have to meet him in parking lots or have to come up with money to get my drugs than just waking up in the morning and taking a damn pill and not doing drugs or alcohol. You know, you think about it now and it's just insane thinking that we go through and that's how we think. Yeah. So, but it, it, Becoming up into my 30s, I had lost my 40th job, I think. I've been through 46 jobs since the age of 21. Just couldn't hold a job. And I never wanted to admit that it was the drugs and the alcohol. It was always the job or the employees or the boss or everything else but me. You know, right. it couldn't be me. And it sure as hell wasn't the drugs or alcohol. That couldn't be the problem. But yeah. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold a job. And in my 30s, I had a bright idea that I'm not getting any younger and I want to compete again. I want to get back into sports. So at the age of 32, my wife allowed me to, to pick up mixed martial arts and train. She said, after a year, if you're not making money, if you're not doing anything, you got to stop and get a job. And we have now two daughters and enough's enough. She was starting to get sick of my shit. But that year ended up turning into three years of me fighting up and down the East Coast, getting sponsors, making some money, fighting on TV, fighting for belts. It was it was pretty cool, to be honest with you. And it gave me a self-esteem that I hadn't had since I was 20s in, in the Marine Corps. Right. The, the training and, and the diversity and still going to the gym, even if you had no job, just the dedication and discipline, it just made me feel whole again. But at the age of 35, I ended up tearing my rotator cuff, major surgery, and the doctor started prescribing me 20 milligram Oxycontins. And we're talking... I'm 47 in three days, so 35, so damn, 12 years ago, the doctors would just give them to you. Like yeah. they, don't have what, they don't have in place what they do now. we got to see a pain therapist, and you got to go through some hoops, which is awesome because that's the way it should be. Yes. But I would just simply go to my primary and say, I need more. I accidentally dropped it in the toilet. The whole bottle went in the toilet, you know? Or I, yeah, I opened my car door and it fell out on the concrete. I need a new. And I would get them refilled. And as usual, I'm an addict, so I wouldn't take one every four hours. I'd take four every four hours. I'd run out of my prescription two weeks before the doctor would get me. And I'd have to call my friends and get something to hook me up for the next 10, 12 days, whenever, until my prescription landed. The usual uh, mental, addictive, sick thoughts. That, that we do. And I got to a point where I was scared. I, I was taking eight to 10, 20 milligram oxys, drinking a 12 pack of beer a day, smoking almost about a, a quarter of weed a day. That was my make me feel good concoction. Right. 
And I got scared. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to bed one night and my body's going to say, you know what? Screw you. I'm done. And I didn't want that. I didn't want to die in my sleep. So my addictive personality and my mental disorder says, well, just do it right now. So I reach over and I grab my bottle and I pour it out of my hand. There was 18, 20 milligram oxys and I took all 18 of them. I go out into the living room and I drink a 12 pack of beer. I go back into my bedroom and I say, please, God, don't let me wake up. I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't know how to stop. I just want the pain to go away. And I passed out. I woke up that next day, evening time. I think it was seven, eight o'clock at night. So I've been out for like 18 hours, something like that. But my first thought was, holy shit, I didn't die. My, my second thought was to go and go into the bathroom and grab my refill that was sitting on the counter. And I dumped the entire refill in the toilet. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, this is going to get bad. But no matter how bad it gets, we are never taking pain medicine again. And for the next 10 days of my life, I was the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. Mm -hmm. The whole gambit of coming off of opioid addiction for four years, the night terrors, sweats, insomnia, panic attacks, anxiety, throwing up, chills, fever, you know, going to the bathroom, just it, it, the whole, it was literally hell on earth coming off of those opioids. But I reminded myself every morning, remember this feeling, remember this feeling, we're never doing this again remember this feeling and I remember that specifically telling myself in between the tears and the throwing up and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying remember this feeling we're never doing this again and thank God I was able to, to stop taking the pain medicine and that was 2017 wow. and there's a little bit more to the story I had had a I'll, I'll, I'll share it real quick because I don't want to get too into my story but it after those 10 days I was really lost. I didn't know why I survived. I didn't know why I was here. I didn't know my purpose. And I sure as hell didn't believe in a higher power because if a higher power created me, then why am I suffering so bad? Why am I going through all of this pain? I didn't think I deserved it. And I tr truly didn't believe there was something else out there because if it was, why am I suffering? Why do so many people suffer in the world? Why do kids get cancer? Why, you know, why are there starving children over in different third countries? If you love us and you created us, why are we suffering so bad? So I was just, my faith was out the door. There's no way something could exist. Right. So I get in my truck and I'm driving through this beautiful reservoir we have here in Maryland. And I'm driving through and I'm banging on the steering wheel. And I'm banging on the, 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 you know, the roof of my, my truck. I'm like, why did I live? Why did I live? What's my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I suffering? Just completely losing my shit, actually. And I, and I get around to the corner of this bend. And in 1996, my best friend lost control of his vehicle, hit the tree at the age of 18 years old, and unfortunately lost his life. At this tree, his parents had set up a memorial. There's a, a vase hanging off the tree where you can put fresh flowers. There's a picture of him like in, embedded, like screwed into the tree. And there's a book wrapped in plastic that is still there today that you can go and take it out of the plastic and, and write to him. And I get out and I go up to the tree and I'm crying. I'm like, Bill, I need your help. I need to know why I'm here. I need to know why I, I, I survived. What is my purpose? If there is anything else out there, I need a sign. 
I need to know that there's something else out there greater than me because I don't believe it. I don't believe if something loved me, I'd be suffering so much. Please give me a sign. And I get in my truck and I go to leave the park. And as I'm driving out, I'm crying and I'm snotting. So I can't really drive. So I pull over. But I pull over on the wrong side of the road for some reason. I don't pull over. I'm driving on the right side of the road. I don't pull over where it's supposed to. I pull over on the left side facing the, the oncoming traffic. And I'm wiping my, my eyes. I'm blowing my nose. And I'm crying. About 10 minutes goes by. And this car pulls up. And the man gets out. And he grabs his dog from the back seat. And he's about to go walk across the street where the water is. And I'm watching him get out. And I'm just looking at him. I'm like, man, this, this guy looks so familiar. I know I know him from somewhere. I, I, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me. It was my best friend who died in 1996. This was his father. Oh. I hadn't seen this man since the day of my friend's funeral. This date is March 16th, 2017, 21 years later. And I get out of my truck and I look at him. I say, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he turns around, looks at me and he's like, Timmy, what's wrong? And I fall to the curb and I start crying. I'm an addict. I'm a drug. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. I tried taking my own life. I don't know why I'm here. And he walks over to me. He puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. My bags are packed in the back seat. I was supposed to leave at 6 a.m. and be on the road. But my wife came to me in a dream last night. She told me to come here this morning at 10 a.m. and walk the dog. I believe I was sent here to see you. And I just looked at him and I said, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him to give me a sign that we weren't alone, that there was something else out there. And he just looks at me and goes, we're being watched over. We're being protected. Everything's going to be okay. And I leave the park. I have about 10 minutes where I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be okay. You know, everything's going to be all right. Nothing is going to happen to me. I'm going to be protected. And as soon as I remember saying that, my addiction and my mental illness manipulated what I just said. And it tells me, you're right. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're being protected. So you don't have to stop living the way that you do. Mm. And the next four years of my life, I drank the most alcohol I've ever drank in my entire life. The beer wasn't enough. I, I switched over to the whiskey. And I, again, the addiction plays with your thoughts. And I always told myself not to buy a big bottle of whiskey because then if I drank it and at the end of the day, it was gone. I sure as shit. I'm an alcoholic, right? Because right. I'd be able to, to gauge how much alcohol I actually drank that day. So it told me to pick up the little miniatures. I could drink them and throw them out while I'm driving. I could hide them in my pockets, hide them in the medicine cabinet, hide them in the kitchen, hide them downstairs. Had them in my truck, had them everywhere. So my wife didn't see them. My kids didn't see them. My friends didn't know how much I was drinking, but I'd always have them on me. I had them down in my sock, like just all these crazy thoughts of just not wanting the accountability of how much liquor I was actually drinking. Yeah. It got to the point where I, I would get up at 630 and go to the liquor store and get a, a sleeve of fireball, which is 10 miniatures. I would drink all of that by 1:30 in the afternoon. On my lunch break, I'd go to the nearest liquor store, grab another 10. I would finish all that by the time I got off work, which is about 3.30. I'd stop again at the liquor store and get another 10. 
and I would finish those by eight, nine o'clock at night, whenever I passed out. But the last year to year and a half of my, my alcoholism, I was drinking 25 to 30 fireball miniatures a day. Um, smoking, smoking pot every day. There was no, no pain pills, but the, the liquor for me, I remember when I first drank it, it gave me that warm, fuzzy blanket feeling that the pain pills used to give me. So that for me, that was kind of the substitute, but one of those miniatures is two and a half shots. So two and a half times 25 to 30, I'm just drinking upwards of 50 to 80 shots of fireball a day. Damn. Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. And it got to the point where I wrecked my truck. I didn't remember it. My wife kicked me out of the house. I slept two days in my truck with the phone off, drinking and passing out and drinking and passing out, not wanting to talk to nobody. I remember putting on sad ass music and, and putting my putting myself through the whole gambit of I'm a piece of shit. My my kids deserve a better father. My mom deserves a better son. My wife deserves a better husband. Just, you know, just really putting it on myself. All the arguments I caused, all the jobs I've lost, or just everything. And at the end of two days, I turned my phone on. And two minutes after I turned it on, after 48 hours of it being off, I turned it on at 7 after 10 in the morning. And at 9 after 10 in the morning, the phone rings. And I remember looking down. I mean, like, Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm like, I don't know anybody in Pennsylvania. My first thought is it's a scam caller or a bill collector or something like that. But for some reason, I pick it up. And uh, on the other end was my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. And he says, Lodgin, what the fuck are you doing? I said, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm drunk, and I'm tired. And he says, good, motherfucker, that's what you need. I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I got a plane ticket for you tonight at 8.30. I got you in the Banyan Treatment Centers down West Palm Beach, Florida. I want you to get on that plane and go get your life back. And I'm kind of just like, yeah, okay, okay. I'm, I'm agreeing with him because I really don't want to hear what he has to say. Yeah. And I just want to get off the phone. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I hang up the phone. My wife calls me. Where are you? We're sick about you. People have been trying to find you. I just got off the phone with Brandon. Please come home. Pack your bags. Take a shower. Try to take a nap and eat something. I had about four hours till the plane left. So I go home. I took a shower. Packed my bags. I couldn't eat and I couldn't take a nap. I'm in full panic and anxiety mode. My mind's racing. Holy shit. I got to go to rehab. Have my life get this bad. How long am I going? He never told me. Is it a 30-day program, a 60-day, 90, a six-month program? Like, holy shit, I got to go to Florida. What about my, my truck? What about my job? What about my kids? What about everything else except for what about my life? What about my sobriety, right? Because everything else is more important. And I'm sitting on the edge of the bed, and, and I'm talking myself out of going. I can't go. I got this. I can't go. I got that. I don't want to go. And one last time, my addiction, I, I truly believe that my addiction and mental illness knew that it was the last time it had a chance to take my life. And I remember it saying, just take my hand and walk with me. And my addiction walks me into the basement of my home. I throw a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket and it tells me to jump off and end the pain. And I listen and I go downstairs and I do exactly what it tells me to do. 
my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom. So she comes looking for me. And I, I, I now know that there's no such thing as coincidences and timing and, and what happens to us in life. Because literally the moment I was about to step off, my wife comes down the steps and says, what are you doing? And I said, I, I can't go. I can't do it. I don't know how to stop. I just want the pain to go away. And she says, do you know what this would do to your little girls? Please get down and get on that plane. Everything will be okay. Just get on the plane. So I get off, call my friend Brandon. I'm like, dude, I got to go. I said, if I don't get on that plane tonight, my addiction and mental illness is going to kill me. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. I want to make sure you're getting on the plane, not catching a cab and leaving the airport after you get dropped off. Right. <clears throat> so I get all there. I, I get my mom picks me up, takes me to the airport. I get past security, and um, I call them. I say, "Hey, buddy, I got 35 minutes till the plane leaves. I'm getting on. I'm going. You know, I just want to let you know." And all he says is, "I'm proud of you. I love you. You're about to get back everything that you've ever lost times 10." And he hangs up the phone. And what happened to me next, I truly believe is the, the most beautiful and magical thing that's ever happened to me in my life. As I sit down at this airport, I go to sit down in the seat, waiting for them to call me to board the plane. And as I sit down, I feel this, this overwhelming feeling of hope that, that just engulfs my body. It was the same feeling that the drugs and alcohol gave me, that warm, blanket, tingly feeling that I was so used to. Except this time, my pain, my worry, my fear, my doubt, my anxiety, my panic. And I truly believe that my, my addiction was lifted from my body. And I hear this woman's voice that I've never heard before or since. And it was very loving. It was very calming. And she simply says, everything is going to be okay. I truly believe I had a spiritual awakening and a spiritual experience at that airport. I can't explain it. I don't want to because it changed my life in that very moment. Everything felt calm. Everything went away. And I finally knew at the age of 44, I was in the right place at the right time to save my life. I went into rehab 100 miles an hour. I, I, I used to joke and say I went full attic mode into rehab because I did. I didn't. I didn't miss any. I didn't miss any meetings. I went to extra meetings for military members and first responders. I shared. I volunteered. I journaled. And I did everything that they asked me. I changed my diet. I started working out with a personal trainer Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I, I became mentally, spiritually, and physically balanced for the first time in my life. And I, it was what I needed. And again, there was no coincidences when I got there and they took my tests. They called me back in the office and I remember the doctor asked me, how old are you? I said, I'm 44. He said, okay. He said, I don't know how you got here at this time. He said, but if you would have waited another month, even if you would have stopped drinking, he said, you would have not made it to your 47th birthday. The damage that you're at the alcohol has been doing to your body would have killed you within three years. He said, I truly don't know how you got here at this time. He said, but you came at the exact timing to reverse all the damage into your internal organs. He said, your liver and kidneys are four times what they should be. Your blood pressure is 165 over 147. You're on the verge of having a stroke. He said, um, I, I, I just 
my, my resting heart rate was like 115 beats a minute, almost a little bit under the running, you know, running heartbeat. And he said, you truly, you truly came at the right time to save your life. And they were able to put me on medicines. I was able to get my life back in order to become healthy. I went in rehab. I was like 225 pounds overweight, um, completely just didn't even look like myself. And 32 later when I left, I was 192 pounds, healthy, happy. And for the first time in my life, loved myself. And because of that experience, I, I get to meet people like you now and, and share my story all over the world and, and hopefully reach one more person to let them know that they're not alone. They're not, they don't have to be embarrassed. They don't have to be ashamed. There's so many more of us out there and we're here to listen and help. It's a beautiful thing to have the opportunity at a second chance in life. And I need to know that, it, you know, it's, it, what happened to me for that 27 years didn't happen to me. It happened for me. I know that now. And people need to understand that it's okay. You're not alone. There's so many more of us out there and we're here to help. You're loved and we believe in you and you can do it. And it's a blessing to be alive. It really truly is. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> Thank you so much. That was powerful and and to also just know that there's no point to where it's too late to turn it around, right? Like, because people, we all have different extension. We go to different lengths when we are in different places, different bottoms, whatever you want to call it. But you were, you know, staring death in the face, literally. Absolutely. And, it around, and that's, it's, it's really powerful. So... Mental health awareness and advocacy is a big part of your story and the help that you offer the world, which I, which I love because it's just not talked about often enough. Better now than back in the day, but still we have a long way to go to remove stigma yeah. and just stuff like that. How do you manage now dual diagnosis, you know, being in recovery, just how does, what does that look like for you? It's for me, it's about balance. It truly is. I know I have to go to work to, to bring money in the house and pay bills. Um, I have to, for me, I have to go to the gym. <laughs> I have to have some type of physical exertion. Other, And even though I'm a carpenter and I bust my ass all day up and down ladders, carrying wood, whatever I'm doing, it's a physical job. It truly is. But I need to go to a gym and lift weights and, and exert myself. It, it helps me with discipline and consistency and no matter how I'm feeling, I go do it and it gives me a sense of accomplishment. It sure as hell helps my dopamine and endorphin levels. Mm. It really is a, a huge part of my mental health. Yeah. I go to the gym for my mental health. The physical aspect is just a, a byproduct of me going to the gym every day. So for me, my sobriety, I, I hate to say it is 50% physical physically doing something right it gives me a sense of accomplishment which then tells me i've accomplished something today it gives me what else can i accomplish what else can i what else can i do it gives my self-esteem great i feel better about myself going to meetings and when i first came home i did 98 and 90 like they they told me to do i was i, I really i really plugged into that again they tell you 90 and 90 not to consume you with 
NA or NA or CA or whatever AA, whatever A you're a part of. <laughs> it's just it's to get you disciplined to keep going and to learning more about yourself, to learn the steps of recovery, to learn more about yourself and the reasons you became an addict. Yeah. It's not just to get you to a meeting to listen to John or Tom or Lisa's story. It, it really is. There's a bigger meaning to get you to go to those meetings for 90 and 90. And it helps you to continue on that structured path of recovery. And I, I, I love spending time with my kids now yeah. um, and my wife. I wasn't such a good husband or father. Thank God I was never physically abusive. I never tucked on my hands on anybody in my family, but I sure shit was a verbally abusive asshole. Yeah. I said the meanest things to the people I love the most. And unfortunately, words are some of those things that you can never take back. Yeah. Words usually cut deeper than any physical pain because the physical pains can heal. But those, those scars of the heart, the scars that you, of the words that come out of your mouth last eternity. You know, yeah. my daughter, my oldest daughter is 24. And she told me some of the stuff I said to her when I was in my active addiction. And I broke down into, I said, I didn't say that. She said, you did. And I remember for the rest of my life that, that hurts. That that's really painful. So I love to spend time with them, quality time. I love going to meetings. I, I do like getting out and I like being around like-minded individuals. They all have the same goal, you know, common goal in mind. So I have to have my, my physical, I have to have my mental and my spirituality. I actually, I don't know if I'm a religious, I don't know if I truly believe in Jesus Christ in that aspect, but I believe in a higher power. I believe in a God. I believe in there's something in the universe, 100%. We're all connected somehow, some way. Everything happens for a reason. There's no coincidences. And it's all for us to grow and to ultimately become the person that we were always meant to be. I love that. Thank you. Yeah. And I like how you kind of tie it back to those earlier patterns of needing structure, discipline, identity, whether it was the Marine Corps or getting back at getting into fighting. But it's there's something about that repetitive, you know, going to meetings and also doing what kind of not doing what we want. Right. We want to use, I want to do this. I want to think about myself all day and do whatever the hell I want. But it's like, I'm going to go to a meeting instead, or I want to sleep in today. No, I'm going to go to the gym instead. It's that it's like cultivating self-respect, I guess, because you're being disciplined, following through. And it doesn't matter if you feel like it or not, just do it. Like, it's not about what you want. It's not about how you feel. It's about, and that builds confidence. It builds this self-love and self-respect. Cause it's easy to go do the things we want to do. What's not easy is to follow through when we don't feel like it. That's hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. You know, I, I read somewhere that 90% of people's decisions are based off emotion. Yeah. So pretty much fuck your feelings. Yeah. Go get, go get it done. No matter what. Just do it. And you'll That's feel better it. after you'll feel better after. I can't tell you how many times I've been driving to the gym or a meeting or meet with a sponsee and just like, Oh, oh I don't want to do it. I don't feel like this. I'm tired work and this, you know, and then I leave there just on cloud nine, you know, every time what yeah. side of it, you're like, okay, I, I did something useful. That was good. You know, and it's, it's rarely what I want to do, <laughs> but it's definitely what I need. Yeah. To, right. 
if a couple of days goes by, because there'll be times I get busy and I don't get to a meeting for four or five days. My wife immediately knows my demeanor. She's like, when's the last time you went to a meeting? I'm like, Sunday. She's like, you need to go tonight. I'm like, why? She's like, you're, you're just off. She's like, every time you go and come back, you're lighter, you're happier, you're, you're more open. She's like, I can completely tell a difference when you come home from the meeting. Huge difference. It's crazy. It is crazy. And it's crazy how fast. I don't. I can't speak for other people, but for myself, my thinking starts to change real quick. Like, I mean, yes. You know, and, and that scares me that it's always just kind of there right under the surface, you know, and then I leave a meeting and because my mind will start to say, you're not even an alcoholic. Like you've been sober for a long time. You're fine. Like you were going through a rough patch. You don't even like these people. Right. It's that it's that like conversation that starts to happen. And if I hang out with myself for very long, I'll believe all of it. And so and then I go back to a meeting and I leave there like this is amazing. I'm so grateful for these people. I'm so grateful to be recovered and, and sober and alive and all from sitting in a room for an hour with people like it just right. completely it's crazy it make it's not logical it makes no sense but it works and so i don't know that's, that's really right. weird so like when was the last time you thought about drinking or using or you had a moment where you know you weren't on the beam you know and what did you do what do you do to kind of push through to get to the other side of that so the first year and a half of sobriety, it didn't cross my mind one time. I didn't think about it. I didn't, I didn't crave it. I would see people drinking and I would get disgusted and sick to my stomach. Four months into my sobriety, I went to a 4th of July party with one of the uh, gentlemen I graduated boot camp with. And another, there was another guy there that I graduated boot camp with. It was the first time I've seen him since 1994. And I get around, we walk around to the back of the house and get walk up on the deck. And my buddy, who I haven't seen me in 20 plus years, 25, 26 years, Lodging, how you doing, buddy? Man, you look great. And without even finishing the sentence, he turns around into the cooler of ice and pulls out an ice cold cores. And he's like, here you go, buddy. And I, I, I look at it and I'm like, well, I'm not going to lie. That looks great. I mean, it was so cold. Steam was coming off of it. And I was like, I don't, I, I don't drink anymore, man. And he's like, oh, shit, I forgot. I'm sorry. He said, it was, it was just habit, man. He's like, would you like a water? I was like, yes, please. That was the first time I had to deal with that. I said, but don't worry about it. I know this is going to happen. It's not a big deal. Just let it go. It is what it is. I didn't have the urge to drink it, but I will tell you when he pulled it out of that ice cold cooler, I was like, holy shit. And my first thought was I would guzzle it. I wouldn't, I'd be like, look, 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 look. I would take that whole damn thing back. But then two hours into the party and you're sober and you see that switch of the people because now you're, you're five, six, six drinks in at a two hour party. You know what I mean? You're at least on your fourth. You start listening to what people are talking about. You start seeing the mannerisms. Everybody's up close in their face, all hugging each other. I love you. It just, I was like, I don't miss any of this at all. Like, yeah. this is the part I don't miss. It just looked. And when I remember leaving there, my wife was like, were you okay? I was like, yeah. I said, but it, it, I, I, we had to go. I said, it started getting on my nerves. Yeah. It started reminding me of, of how I was. And I remember saying, was I that bad? And she, she kind of giggled and she said, no. You were worse. <laughs> and I was like, 
I was like, what? She goes, yeah, Tim. She said, you, you, she said, if you were drinking, I'm sure we would have got kicked out of this party an hour ago. Yeah. I was like, wow. But no, I it's still, I'd had no, no cravings. The first unfortunate time I had a craving was January of this year. I have three daughters, 24, 15, and my youngest just turned 12 last week. And, uh, it had come to my attention that they had been molested. All three of my girls. And it was by my very own brother. And the state police picked him up. Um, he's in prison now. We still haven't gone to court yet, but uh, I remember hearing it. And I remember feeling broken. I remember feeling it was my fault because when it happened, I was drinking. Yeah. I, w I wasn't there to save my children. I'm a piece of shit. How could I let this happen? The unfortunate thing is, I would, and I need to tell parents this, that we can be as protective as possible with our children. We can make sure that John or Joe or, or Miss Betty or Miss, Miss Sue doesn't hang out with our kids as much as possible. But there is no possible way on earth that we can always be with our children at every given moment of life. It's an unfortunate thing that does happen, even when we are so protective of our kids and we think we've done everything right. Yeah. It's unfortunate that it happens, but it does, it does happen. So when I first got that, I was like, I'm a piece of shit. You know, it's my fault. I could have done this. I could have, I should have, I should have saw the signs. I should have paid attention more. You know, trying to just put everything on me. And my, and I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to go to the liquor store and I'm going to get liquor and I'm going to drink and I'm going to forget all about this shit. And I said a couple things like that in my head. And then out of nowhere, my mind said, no, we're not doing that. We have come too far. And we are not letting that motherfucker take your sobriety too. Yeah. That's yours. And nothing in this world that will happen to you has the power to take your sobriety. I've earned it. And and I made that decision within like 30 seconds. And um, I know now that if I can get through that, which it, no parent should ever have to go through ever, between that and having a, a child lose their life, no parent should have to go through any two of those things. But if I can get through that, then I can get through anything. And there's nothing in this world that has the power to take my sobriety away from me. It's mine. Yeah. And I'm going to die sober. And that's the way my mind thinks now. Yeah. I talked to a guy who I'm really close with. Um, his name's Jason from Knocking Doors Down podcast. And we talk very, very frequently. He's in, he's in California. And he gives me a lot of, a lot of wisdom. He really does. And he was just like, Tim, he's like, um, sobriety is yours. If you lose sobriety, you lose everything anyway. So make sure that sobriety is your number one goal, your number one purpose and focus. Because that's, if I lose sobriety, I'm losing everything anyway and nothing else matters. It doesn't matter. Everything's gone. Right. So, um, that, Nothing is taking that from me. I'm Ever. so 
I just cannot, I, you know, that was, that was on my list of questions to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, and I'm so sorry that that happened because it's horrible enough in general, but at the hands of a family member is another layer of just betrayal. And, and I can't, I can't imagine. So I'm, I'm really sorry that your daughters, um, went through that and that you, you guys as a family are going through that, but, but also that you, I liked how you talked us through the process because when it's something that bad, our brain usually will just that, that is the first solution that's going to populate, right? It's just natural. It's how we're wired. But the fact that you've got that, that buffer, that wherewithal to kind of work through it and, um, you know, because that would be us making this situation about ourselves ultimately, right? Like, and when things have happened, you're making an emotional decision, right, right? Instead of what's actually the best thing. And like, you know, when my, I lost my dad in September to cancer and I was working and I, it was the first time really in my recovery was like, holy shit, I really want to numb out. Like, I don't want to be here for this. I don't want to have to watch him go through this. But I, but 30 seconds later, like you said, went through this whole series of conversations with my addiction essentially, and with my recovery and kind of let it come out on the other end. But I can't make his suffering about me, right? Like the best thing for me to do is to be here for him in his pain and in his time and in my family's Um, selfishly. Of course, I wanted to check out, like, I didn't want to have to feel that and see it. And you don't want to have to feel that and see that and watch your daughters have to work through those things. And, you know, but good for you that you're able to, you know, First of all, not just go what? kill somebody <laughs> for one thing. Well, um, that 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 was literally my very first thought. Yeah. I'm gonna kill that guy. I'm, I'm gonna kill him, right? As a mom, that would be my first thought. Like somebody's about to die. <laughs> but after after I did get through the process in about you know 30, 45 seconds, you know, I, I, I what would have that done? Now I'm in jail. Now yep. my kids don't have their father. Yep. And right? he wins. And then I, I went and he wins all over. Like the whole thing. And then my, and then I questioned God again. Okay. I understand why I went through everything. I get it. Why are the kids going through this? They didn't do anything. They're, they're kids, right? Yeah. Maybe they have a purpose too. Maybe they happened to them so they could reach out and help other children to get through it. Because the first thing a child thinks is it's their fault. Yeah. What? They did it and they didn't want to say anything because they're embarrassed. They didn't want to get that person in trouble. They were a part of it. It's their fault. They're ashamed. It's not the children's fault. It was a sick son of a bitch who did something to them and it's not their fault. So maybe my kids are going to be a generation where they go and speak to other kids. I don't know. Maybe I went through what I went through and got sober when I did. So I was able to help my children through this situation. Yeah. So they could better understand what happens to them in life isn't their fault. And there's ways to deal with it, not through emotions, but through rational thought process to understand everything has its purpose, good or bad. And also you, you're reiter- just reiterating the fact that no person, place, or thing can ever, ever, ever take our sobriety away from us. And when I was going through all my relapsing and this and that, and, you know, and then somebody would piss me off, right? An ex-husband, an employer, a thing or whatever. I was always looking for a reason to drink, you know, or use or, or and 
And then I eventually learned like, no, the onus is on me. Like there is absolutely no situation. They call it the no matter what club at my original home group in Houston. And it's like, <laughs> no matter what, I'm talking like lose a child, like the worst possible things you could ever imagine in your life. Like even that cannot make you drink unless you make that, you know, and but and it's easy to talk about in theory, but when you're going through it, when you're sitting in that emotion and that anger and rage, fear, sadness, whatever it is, it's that's a whole nother, you know, and a lot of times we do have the ability to work through it. But for me, I need to reach out. I need to go to a meeting. I need to share about it. I need to call my sponsor. I need to write. I need, you know, because um, like I said, sometimes there's enough recovery to overshadow the addictive you know, there's a language of my disease and there's a language of my program and my higher power and one's emotional and one is logical. And I, sometimes I'm okay working through it. Uh, sometimes I'm not, <laughs> but I'm okay to ask for help. And I just, you know, right. kind of leads to my next question of you, like your background leans very kind of tough guy, right? Like a Marine, boxer, MMA, like, and I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but like, um, I mean, I was married to a cage fighter very briefly, but it, I will say it was very interesting. And uh, and there's a lot of tough guy stuff. There's a lot of, you know, really hard training and discipline and this kind of intensity and all that. But there's also a lot of drugs and alcohol and Adderall and like all this, all this stuff that was weird to me as an athlete that you would also be doing. So I saw into that world a little bit, but I will say that like they did not ask for help. There is no weakness. Like you get your face busted open and you just keep fighting and you're bleeding everywhere. And like, right. This, this sense of I'm indestructible. I don't need help. That kind of thing. So like, how yes. did that or does that play into your recovery? Because a lot of us staying sober is asking for help or, you know, encouraging other people to ask for help when they need it. How do you reconcile that? Through my recovery, I have learned that my ego is not my friend. <laughs> yeah. My ego tells me I'm 10 foot tall and bulletproof, which so did the Marine Corps. We're right. indestructible. Nothing can stop us. We're, we're, we're uh, Satan's worst nightmare. You know, all this stuff that they, they program you into believing. But I, again... I think that's what also has given me the fortitude and toughness to beat the disease of addiction. Right. The ability to understand that I am, I, I, I've gone through the training in my life, all this masculine, tough guy, testosterone filled stuff in my life. Cause I, my soul is a warrior. I'm supposed to fight things in my life. I'm supposed to overcome them and to, to ultimately be, the warrior I'm supposed to be, I have to go through the trenches. I have to go through these deep, dark battles, mentally, spiritually, physically, to come out on the other, on the side. I've also learned in my recovery that sharing your emotions, sharing the, I would say the more feminine side of yourself actually makes you a stronger human being. Yeah. They say one of the scariest things about a human is when they're in touch with both their masculine and feminine side. That's powerful. Because they know both aspects of their life. I think I was trying to be this big masculine, you know, tough guy my entire life because I was scared to be in touch with my emotional side. 
I didn't want anybody to think I was weak. It's not weak showing your emotions. It's not weak crying if you're a man. It's not weak asking for help. It's not weak saying I, I was defeated. I can't do this on my own. Can you help me? That shows courage and bravery and strength beyond lifting any type of weight, beyond being punched in the face, beyond going to to war. You know, guys that go to combat and combat, you, you you're on this fight or flight response in your head 24 seven. It's like an overabundance of endorphins that you just, you're on your toes for everything. And then when they come home, they have that difficult time of converting back into, I don't have to worry about what's over my shoulder. I don't have to worry about going around the side of the building and getting my head blown off. And they, they, they can't get rid of that, 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 like survival instinct. And when they do, they feel as if they're lesser of a man. I'm not a man anymore. You know, no, it makes you a, a human being. Right. That's what it does because you are a human being and yeah. we all have emotions, good or bad, hard or easy, um, masculine or feminine. And that's what makes us human. Yeah. You know, we're, they say the best thing about sobriety is get your feeling back. And the worst thing about sobriety is get your feelings back. Right. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've chosen to embrace both and all sides of my feelings and emotions. And I found that by sharing that, you know, even me, cause on paper, I'm supposed to be this, you know, rough and tough dude. And, and, you know, I'm doing bodybuilding now. I'm doing my second show in November. I'm, I'm supposed to be doing all this cool stuff. But, there's, there's other sides, there's other sides to, to us that people need to understand and see. Yeah. Just, it just makes us more connected as people. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're like that and you are this tough guy, you've got this, this persona, you know, and the way you look and, you know, all this. And so if, if you're the poster child of, you know, masculinity, if you will, I mean, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but if yeah. they see you being vulnerable, saying I need help, ask, talking about hard things. I mean, it gives other people permission. It, it, it removes that, you know, toxic masculinity of like, no, I need to be tough and this and that. But it's also really weird to me because I'm a, I'm a girl, but I was raised very much in that same way. We don't talk about feelings. We don't, you know, put some dirt on it. You'll be fine. Suck it up, you know, like just because that's how my pop was raised. And that's how, that's just how we were, how it was. And so crying and being girly and all this stuff was, was, frowned upon, you know? And so, but this concept of like surrender to win, which really is what sobriety is, right? It's this surrender to win. And that's not how I was raised. I was raised to fight. We fight. We don't surrender. You can't win. If you surrender, you lost, you forfeited, you gave up, you're a loser. Like you don't, you never, you can't, you know? So when I came into recovery and they were like, you know, you have to surrender. And I was just like, mm, you know, but the, the, that vulnerability and asking for help and crying and being willing to talk about feelings and work the steps and deal with stuff that I've been running from from a really long time, like that's the that's where the freedom was. Right. Idea of surrendering felt like defeat, and I couldn't. My ego couldn't. Yeah. I just could not admit that I couldn't figure it out. You know. So when well, I see another the funny way, thing is. Yeah, people admit ahead, sorry. I couldn't figure it out, you know? Right, right. And, and step one is surrender. 
so hard. We're powerless over drugs and alcohol and our life become unmanageable. And, and, and unless you don't admit that to yourself, you'll never get it. You're surrendering to the fact that you are powerless over drug or alcohol and your life is unmanageable on them. Yes. That's the first step, surrender. You're surrendering to the fact that you need help. And I've heard I wasn't many- ready until I was ready. I've heard people, yeah, it takes what it takes. And I've heard people say, we don't have to work any of the steps perfectly except the first half of the first step, you know? And if I ever forget my powerlessness, I'm screwed. Like I can't, I'll just never be able to hold on to it. And then later that transfers to people, places, and things. You're powerless over yeah. what your brother did. I'm powerless over, you know, we're powerless over that. And that, that's, it's a tough pill to swallow for your ego. But once you do, it's just so much calmer, you know, because the, the outcomes, I'm just not in charge of outcomes. I know what I can do when I show up and, and I wake up in the morning. And if I do that to the best of my ability, that's that's what I got. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the, the serenity prayer has become one of my best friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, how, how have your relationships, like with yourself, your children, your wife, your friends, whatever, like, what would you say about how your relationships have changed in sobriety? You, you've alluded a little to the fact that, you know, you had issues before and the way that you behaved and this and that, but you know, what does that look like? Cause to me, that's one of the most important parts of my recovery is the fact that I was able to restore relationships that mean a lot to me. So what does it look like for you in your life? So, persons, places, and things. I've lost probably 90% of my friends as far as the guys I used to party with. But, but when you look back on it, were they really my friends or, or, they, or were they just people that I got fucked up with? You know what I mean? Even though I've known them since high school, I've known them 20 years, most of my life, that was most of my life. So people come for a reason or a season, a lesson or a blessing. Maybe that they're just part of my story and they're no longer there. I have lost a lot of friends in that aspect, but that's okay because I don't, I'm no longer that person. Yeah. I have been able to mend relationships that was always meant full to me. Me and my father, for example, he saw me one year after me being sober. It was the first time I saw him in five years. He lives 15 minutes from me. It's not like we live in different states. It's not like we live hours apart from each other. I could literally get in my car and be at his house in 14 and a half minutes. And I remember when he saw me for the first time after five years, and this is a man who was a 37 year police veteran, eight year army veteran, um, kind of a masculine man. He, he broke down in tears and, uh, and he hugged me and he cried and he told me how proud he was of me. And I believe that is the first time I heard that man ever say that to me since graduating the Marine Corps at the age of 18. And I remember him saying, I don't want any time between us to happen like that again. I just want to move forward, son. And I was, you know, one year in my sobriety. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fresh in sobriety. I'm, I'm hitting meetings a lot. I'm reading a lot. I'm speaking a lot. And I said, dad, what's in the past is in the past. I just want to move forward. I forgive you. And I didn't forgive him for him. I forgave him for me so that I could heal and I could move on. People are going to be people. We all make mistakes. So I was able to forgive him 
And now I speak to my dad once every two weeks. I've gone up to his house. I've helped him. You know, my grandmother passed away two years ago and he got her house in the will. And I've been helping him going up there and going through boxes and cleaning. And, you know, we go to lunch and Tuesday, my daughter's graduating from elementary school. We invited him. You know, we're, we're, I'm including him in my life now, which before I never even wanted to because I was a drunk and alcoholic. I was an addict. I was bullheaded. I was stubborn. I was egotistical. The whole, the whole gambit of, of, you know, addiction and mental illness. And now I, I want, I want that. I want that relationship. I'm not getting any younger and neither is he. And, um, I want them to know that I love them no matter what. My kids, when I used to call them come in the door, my family would scatter like cockroaches with the lights coming on. They didn't know what dad was walking in the door. Was I the funny, giggly, drunk, silly dad that wanted to go outside and squirt them with the hose or play or do something cool? Or was I the angry, pissed off, irritated dad that wanted nobody to talk to him, nobody to look at him, nobody to raise their voice, just wanted to be left alone and do his thing. And in my addiction, when I would come home and everybody would leave, I was like, good, I can sit here and watch TV and do what I want and drink my beer and smoke my pot and nobody's going to bother me. I get to live my life the way I want. Now I come home, the doors are all open. The kids are all out in the living room, dining room. We eat dinner together. We go and do family functions together. We go to amusement parks or the beach or whatever. They tell me about their day. They involve me, include me. The biggest thing is they tell me they love me. They're proud of me. And they're so glad that I got through it. My wife and I, we I didn't make it easy. <laughs> I, I, I truly did not make it easy for that woman. She should have left me over 10 times. No doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. And six months into my sobriety, I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, why didn't you leave me? Because there was plenty of opportunities and reasons I gave you to do so. She simply said, because I love you. And I loved you when you didn't love yourself. I believed in you when you didn't believe in yourself. I knew you could be the man that I once married. That's a hard thing to find. Yeah. That's... A, that's that is uh, a blessing. That is a gift from God. And now being sober and in recovery, I can understand that. And I'm grateful for all these gifts. But I, I wasn't a drinker that went out to the bars and hung out with a bunch of people. I drank at home. You know, I mean, I, I, for me, going to the bars would lead me to jail because I would get into a fight or lead me into another woman's bedroom. And... I, I knew that. Yeah. I knew it. So I just avoided that whole situation and just drank at home. But it affected everyone and everything around me. And now it, it, the, the power of forgiveness is, is real. It's, it's not you forget about it, but forgiveness is, uh, is a key. Um, yeah. moving, forward, moving forward and healing, even though it's some of that shit's so painful, it just you can feel it in your heart and your soul. Yeah. And it, it never goes away, unfortunately, because that's humans. We, we tend to hold on to those things forever. But forgiving and, and understanding that not all of us are always at our best and we are going to do some things that may hurt each other to, to love. Yeah. You know, love one another with, with the same respect that you would want love, love for yourself. 
You know, I've, I've had people reach out to me. I haven't talked to in 20 plus years to tell me they're proud of me. And I give them inspiration. Me, like a drug addict, alcoholic, crazy mental person gives them inspiration to move forward or to get through the things that they're going through. That is worth more any money that ever could be put in my bank account. Yeah. That is the most powerful and most precious thing I've been able to get is uh, to hear that I'm helping somebody else. It's amazing. Yeah. And it answers your question of like, why am I here? You know, what am I doing here? What is my purpose? I mean, you know, that that's it. And also back to that unconditional love of your wife and your family and this two way street of forgiveness, where if I was refusing, which there were parts of my recovery where I just refused to forgive my parents or my ex-husband or this or that, you know, meanwhile, I'm over here asking for forgiveness from my daughter, friends, people, you know, and it, that really isn't how it works, right? It works. I had to, if I want my daughter to forgive me, um, I've, I've got to be able to extend that grace in the direction of, you know, my parents or whoever. And, you know, my ex-husband, one of my ex-husbands, and we hated each other with all of our vigor. And then it's it, at some point you just realize like we were both so sick. We were so wounded and so sick and ill-equipped to deal with stuff. And it really wasn't from a malicious place. It was literally just pain and addiction. And we were working our shit out on each other. And it was a very unfortunate. Right. And a lot of, you can't take it back, right? Like that stuff does permanent damage. And, and I did plenty of damage to, to plenty of people my daughter, you know, included. And like you were saying earlier, some of the things I said and some of the things I did, I mean, I know the promises say we will never regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it, but th there's a couple of those things that, you know, stick with me for sure. You know, yeah, my daughter 100%. has been very gracious about it, but I struggle with the fact that I feel like I don't deserve forgiveness for those things, you know? And the fact that she has given me hundred percent. Yeah. And that's what makes me feel like shit is like, she forgave me with no problem. And I still don't believe that I deserve that forgiveness or to be in her life. Right. So I, I say that now with almost everything, like I, I don't deserve the attention I'm getting in the recovery community. I don't deserve the ability or to, to be able to speak on these podcasts. I don't deserve going and speaking in front of veterans and first responders. Like, how am I getting all this stuff when I was such a piece of shit? But the fact of the matter is, you know, I, that old saying that my mom always told me, which I'm sure you've probably heard, it's better to give than it is to receive. My entire life, I was give me, give me, give me. What can you do for me? What can you give me? I want, I want, I want. Now that I give, now that I, I, I help people without anything expected in return, it has come back to me times 10. So it actually works. You know, when I stopped caring about what I wanted and how I felt and how things are going to affect me and I started helping other people for genuine, like literal general reasons, it has, it has helped me more than I ever could imagine. Okay. I have one final question. I know we're running a little bit over and you sacrificed part of your Saturday. So my last question is, Oh, I have all these extra questions, but we've covered some of it in our, in our, 
I was going to ask about working out and the intensity of like all that and how it can cross over into addictive stuff. But what I really want to hear from you, because so many new people listen to this podcast, new people in recovery, there's a lot of people who are still drinking and using actively. And they're trying to figure out if this is even a lifestyle that they want to entertain and kind of hear from people like, what does it look like day to day? So I want to hear from you what piece of practical advice helped you the most, you know, whether it was early on or, you know, like an example is like, you can restart your day anytime, as many times as you need to, or I don't know, just those, those like, oh shit moments when you're in a pickle, whether it's serenity prayer or a piece of advice that you heard that, that was really kind of like a life, you know, raft for you, I guess. The first one that, that hits me every time when I hear it is, and it's the truth. I have never met anyone that has regretted getting sober. Now yeah. one person has I ever said, man, I shouldn't have gotten sober, man. I shouldn't have, I should have, I shouldn't have stopped shooting up dope, man. I shouldn't have stopped, you know, going and selling myself on the corner for methamphetamines. Not one person have I ever met that said, I regret getting sober that because is- once you get sober, you get your entire life back. Well, and everything, you, your eyes are clear and your mind and your heart. And it takes a while. It takes a while for sleep pattern. It, it takes a while to heal the mind and the body. It so it that's a bumpy road. It, it can be. That's why. And, and it's a cliche thing. But that one day at a time, it literally is one day at a time. Yesterday is the past. Today is the present. Tomorrow is unknown. We don't, we don't understand. So just worry about today, today, tomorrow's done and over with what happened yesterday. We can never take back. We can't change. We can't change what's going to happen tomorrow because it's unknown. We don't know what's going to happen, but you are responsible for what you are going to do today, how you're going to react to situations and how you, when you wake up in the morning, I, I say five things I'm grateful for as soon as I wake up. Okay. It starts my day in a positive way positive affirmation. It just, it just starts my day positive. Yeah. I got to go. And I work in a construction zone. It was 92 degrees on Friday. I had to wear long sleeves and pants. I was drenched. I felt like I was working on the sun. Right. But I have a job, mm-hmm. which pays me. That allows me to put food on the table. It allows me to keep the lights on and, and the cable on. It allows me to put gas in my truck. It allows me to pay for my gym membership. It allows me to have things that if I didn't have a job, I wouldn't be able to have. So, yeah, the situation of the job getting up at 430 in the morning sucks. Working on the sun sucks. But I'm grateful to have a job. I'm grateful to be healthy enough to go to work and perform a job. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to experience life on all aspects and all forms of it. Yeah. I, it. It's not going to be easy, but then again, anything that is worth it never comes easy. And if it does comes easy, it's not worth it. You know, all these little things that when you walk into an AA meeting or NA meeting and they're up on the wall, like, you know, keep it simple, stupid one day at a time, stay until the miracle happens. When I remember first walking in and looking up and I'm reading all this stuff, I'm like, what's the stupid shit on the wall? Like, what is all this stuff? And then the more you go and the more you understand what it actually means and then the, the more that you, you actually start um, incorporating into your life, those simple little words 
that you see and hear repetitively over and over again start to make absolute sense. Yeah. It really does. Sobriety is easy. Yeah. Making the decision to get sober is the hard part. Mm. Well, and, and once you make that decision, yeah. it's, it's, it, you know, it's that decision. There's a series of steps to follow every single day. And if you just keep doing that, you'll keep staying sober. And it's like, you know, one of the, this, this old timer in my home group originally in Houston, he was like, he's like, Hey man, we don't come in here on a winning streak. He goes, and also, have you ever heard anybody come back in, you know, and say, man, I relapsed and it's going great. Like it is just, it is, it's different now. I'm winning my, you know, no, of course not. So like when you said, I've never heard of anyone regretting getting sober, it's like, yeah, because no one ever comes back and says, I was successful. I beat it. I'm able to control, you know, that's right. just not a thing with us. It's just not a thing. And we, our minds will try to tell us it's going to be different this time. We can control it, this and that, but it's like, you know, and then like the little one day at a time, you know, live and let live, well, whatever, you know, sobriety is not easy. You're right. Well, it is easy, but it's not always easy, but it's easier than using because, you know, yeah. that was hard. That's really hard. All the lies and the money and the just attorneys in my case. And, you know, that shit was hard at the end. And this is a, an easier, softer way for sure. But like, you know, it is one day at a time because there are days in recovery where I am just a, a ray of sunshine and I'm like, the birds are singing and I love it. I, you know, and then there are other days where, you know, I don't really want to feel all my feelings when I'm dealing with certain things and I can't numb out or I choose not to numb out. I'm going to go ahead and just feel that stuff and sit with it and, and, you know, losing my dad. And like, there's certain things in life that are still going to happen. Yeah. But the cool thing is life happens on life's terms. Yeah. I can either work through it or I can push it away with drugs and alcohol like I used to. And as soon as I come to guess what, it's, it's still there waiting for me. Um, along with all the consequences I just racked up when I was, you know, running around getting a DW high or whatever just happened. You know what I'm saying? But I love that. No one ever regretted, you know, and they say in in the room sometimes like try it for a year. If you don't like it, you know, we can refund your misery type of deal, which is like, what do right. you have to lose? Right. What do, what do you have to lose at that point when you're at rock bottom? You know, we we all gave up everything for one thing. Why not give up one thing for everything? That's it. That's it. But, but when you're in the throes of it, it doesn't feel like you can ever get there. That's what, that's what new people need to understand is we all felt that way. It, you don't think it's going to work for you, right? We're always the exception. You see all these other people happy in sobriety or whatever, but I, I was like, yeah, but that's not me. I can't, I'm not going to be able to do that. But I did, and a lot of people do. And and we all we all have the same thoughts. You're telling me I can't ever have a drink again. I can't go to a ball game and have a beer. I can't go to a cookout and have a beer. I can't smoke a joint with my buddies and listen to some Led Zeppelin. Like I can't do all these things that I've been used to doing because that's just it's it's cool or that's what I've I've done my entire life. It's not that you don't get to. It's that you don't have to. You don't have to do these things anymore to enjoy life. You can go to a ball game and actually enjoy the experience. You can still listen to your music and actually enjoy the experience. You can go to a cookout and enjoy the experience. The best part about all of it 
is when it's done, you'll remember all of it. Yeah. And you were there. You were really there all the way there, all the way present with the people and the experience. And that's the part about sobriety for me where my channel is just open. It's open to spirituality and nature and people. And sometimes that can be painful because I really am choosing to experience a full spectrum of human emotion, which sometimes really sucks <laughs> because you know, I used to just, I only wanted the good feelings. I don't want to deal with any of that other shit type of deal. But now it's like, no, I mean, it's the same thing as doing something that you don't want to do. If you don't feel like going to the gym, you go anyway, you feel better after. I don't feel like grieving. I don't want to deal with it. I'd rather, you know, just, I don't want to deal with it, but I am. And I feel proud when I'm on the other side of it, you know, and I think we're all going to have stuff like that, you know, but I love that. And I, I cannot thank you enough. Like, Thank you. Thank you for spending part of your Saturday with me and telling your story and being vulnerable and giving all this really good advice. Oh, well, thank, thank you for having a platform and allowing me to share to reach another person. Because if without you doing what you're doing, I wouldn't be able to, to reach somebody who knows where who's going to be watching this. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so. You know, it's we need to my thing is, if one person watches this and it affects their life, then I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. One more is one less. Yes. I love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. 